welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. Very sorry for my voice this morning. I've been trying to get rid of this in my throat for like five days now. Every morning I wake up and there it is again. So um, I've already strained it trying to sing this morning, and if this gives out in the middle, I apologize. Um, I want to do something slightly different today. Open up to the fourth Sunday after Trinity, which is today, on page 262. I want to walk us through all the variable parts of the fourth Sunday after Trinity, uh, listed in the Missal. So if if we were doing the full Mass, you know, these are the parts that we would do. The introit is what we would sing as Father Michael entered into the altar and sensed the altar. The collect is what, of course, he would um, pray, the prayer for the day. The epistle reading is, is what we would read, followed by the gradual chant, which would be sung between the um, epistle and the um, gospel. And the gradual is followed by the Alleluia chant. And then the gospel that I just read, um, we would, of course, sense the gospel, we would chant this, and then a homily would follow. Following the homily, we would then move into the liturgy of the Eucharist itself, <clears throat> placing the gifts on the altar and praying the offertory verse. Then the secret would be prayed by Father Michael as he's preparing uh, the gifts. After we pray the Eucharistic prayer and the consecration at the communion, <clears throat> we would sing the communion verse. And then the post-communion collect finally would be prayed after we had all communed. So that's the structure of all the different parts of the liturgy. And this, these, these parts are, we do every week, but these are the variable parts of the Mass. So we have the common of the Mass, which is like the Kyrie and the Gloria that we sing and all, all of those parts, but these are the variable parts, the parts that change from week to week, day to day, etc., etc. So, that's how <clears throat> all of this works. Now, when all of this was put together centuries ago, very, very early on, we actually have um, the sacramentary of St. Gregory the Great in the 6th century. Very early on, um, he didn't make all this up, but he just codified it and put it in a sacramentary, kind of all in one place for the first time, and we have copies of that, so we can see how early all of this developed. And as you can also see, as we're going to go through this in a, in a second, most of this comes straight from Scripture itself. The vast majority of the content of the liturgy, especially of the West, in the East there's a lot more sort of monastic poetry that has gotten into the services. We have some of that in the West, but in the West, by and large, most of it comes straight from the Bible. So, very early, this has been what the Christians of the West have been praying uh, Sunday to Sunday, every feast day, and this is put together intentionally very often to uh, draw out certain themes, to teach certain lessons, to uh, 
help us to think along a certain line. So I want to take today as an experiment, an example of this, and walk through the different parts of the liturgy to see what they say as we go through them. So, beginning with the introit on 262, I want us to read these with the themes in mind of struggles in the world and God as our protector in the midst of those struggles, okay? So, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When mine enemies came upon me, they stumbled and fell. Though a host of men were laid against me, yet shall not my heart be afraid. Now the themes of struggles and God being a protector are pretty clear from the get-go here in this introit. And as you can see, all of these verses basically come straight from Psalm 27. Um, the the um, antiphon beginning this introit are the first two verses, and then the, the verse, um, verse number three. Um, originally, this was probably much more of Psalm 27. Over the, over the years, this was kind of shortened down into just a, a small little chunk of it. Um, at one point, it might have been the entire psalm that was chanted as the priest and the ministers entered into the church and went up to the altar. Um, but now we have a much uh, shorter version of this as the official chant. It's, it's not a problem to chant the rest of the psalm, but anyway. So here we have at the very beginning of the Mass today, this theme of persecution coming on us, but not being afraid or fearing for anything because God is for us. God is the strength of our lives. Uh, when enemies come on us, they're the ones that end up stumbling and falling. Uh, when a host of people are against us, my heart will not be afraid because God is my strength. So, from that we move to the collect of the day. O God, the protector of all that trust in thee, without whom nothing is strong and nothing is holy, increase and multiply upon us thy mercy, that thou being our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we finally lose not the things eternal. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Again, in this prayer, we see that God is the source of strength and the source of comfort. And it prays that uh, God may increase and multiply his mercy on us, so that as we pass through things temporal, which is a way of saying this world full of struggles and temptations and problems, we lose not the things eternal, the final reward. Okay, so the theme continues on. The epistle for the day comes from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. I believe, yeah, it's uh, from chapter 8. St. Paul says that I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until, together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the theme of suffering in this world and yet our hope being in God continues through in the epistle. But it's given a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a twist. Not only are we hoping that God is our help in the midst of struggles, Paul says, but bear in mind, struggles we will have. Sure, God is our protector, and sure, it's good to pray that he saves us from struggles and temptations and things, but sufferings in this present time, we're going to have nonetheless. But then what does he say about those struggles and temptations and sufferings? He says they're not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. So Paul gives us now a new paradigm to consider suffering and trouble in this world, a paradigm of comparison. Sufferings in this world, glory to be revealed. And the two aren't even worth comparing. The one is a temporal thing. The other, like our collect said, uh, is the thing eternal, the things eternal. And those two are so incomparably different, um, the, the latter being so much greater than the former, that you can't even compare them. So, as we move out of the epistle and turn our... Uh, turn our attention to the gospel as incense is set during the mass and we open the gospels and uh, we sense them and, and we process, we sing the following words, be merciful, O Lord, unto our sins, wherefore do the heathen say, where is now their God? Help us, O God of our salvation, and for the glory of thy name, O Lord, deliver us. Again, going back to the Psalms for our content, this is from Psalm 79. We're again asking the Lord, even after St. Paul's uh, new paradigm that he gives us, we go back to say, O God of our salvation, be merciful and help us and deliver us. Moving on on the next page, 264, the chant, the Alleluia chant. Um, do you know why we chant Alleluia when we are proclaiming the gospel? Because it's the gospel, like it deserves an alleluia. In, in penitential seasons, it's true that we do drop the alleluia uh, in the gospel because we uh, are not emphasizing um, the celebratory aspect of the proclamation of the gospel as much as we are the, um, the needed sort of healing of the content of the gospel. But in seasons like this, in Trinity Tide, we rightly uh, exclaim the glory of the gospel being with us with the words, Alleluia. But then we say, O God, who are set in the throne and judgest aright, be thou the refuge of the oppressed in times of trouble. So again, the theme of God helping those who are struggling in this world continues. And now we come to the gospel that we uh, read a moment ago. And like in the epistle, St. Paul sort of giving this theme in the Psalms a different paradigm, so does Jesus in this gospel passage give us a different way to think about struggles in this world and God is our protector. And what does he tell us in this gospel passage? Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, or give freely, and it shall be given unto you in the same measure. 
for with the same measure that ye meted out, the same measure that you use for other people, that measure will be used on you. And he gave them a parable asking, can blind people lead the blind? Somebody's got to be able to see in order to lead, right? And can you help someone who has minor difficulty if you yourself have a larger difficulty and you don't even realize it? What Jesus is telling us in this passage is that in order to attain the kind of help that the psalmists throughout all of our chants this morning are asking of God, be our help, be our refuge, be our protector, have mercy on us. <clears throat> what is the kind of help that God gives? What is the kind of mercy that God offers? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage, God gives us mercy freely. And in order for you to attain that, you have to give the same kind of mercy. In other words, you have to emulate your Father in heaven in order to receive properly his help. You have to help others. You can't just pray to receive help and not be the kind of person who belongs to the Father. The Father helps his children, doesn't he? What kind of children would we be if we didn't show the family spirit? If we didn't follow after our Father's example? He very frankly tells us, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Actually, in this passage he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Elsewhere in the Gospel he says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. He says, give freely and God will freely give to you. Be merciful, and God will be merciful to you. So all of the prayers that we've been praying throughout the Mass up to this point, God help us, be merciful to us, give us your grace and your help. In order to receive that, that's what we have to do. So all of our uh, natural prayers as people struggling and suffering in this world lead us to this Gospel passage where Jesus tells us the key. How does all of this happen? How do we attain the help that we've been asking for? We have to be helpful. We have to have the light of God in our lives in order to help others so that God's light can help us. Does that make sense? We can't be properly enlightened by God unless we share whatever little light we have with others. <clears throat> there are so many practical ways to practice this uh, reality of letting the little light we have enlighten others. When we encounter people who in life are trying to make decisions and confide in us and, and we rightly see because of having been enlightened by God which path is better and which path is worse, well, I mean, According to the little light we have, we give, them, we give them the best advice that we can. And that advice always is to uh, humble ourselves, to not pursue uh, worldly wealth at the expense of the goodness and, and well-being of others, um, to basically die to yourself. That's the life of Christ. That's the life of the Christian. And that's the light that we have to offer the world. There's so much in this world driven by self-interest. And if at any point we can be 
an example of selflessness to our friends, to the environment, the work environment that, that we may be in, to um, you know, in, in any way that's presented to us. Uh, not not full of pride, not not going out into the world like, you know, I've enlightened, therefore let me show you how to live. That would be us trying to uh, pull specks out of people's eyes with giant moats in our own eye. If we have pride in our hearts, that's a that's a log in our eye. But when we see clearly enough to take the log out of our own eye, that is to uh, renounce our pride, to um, commit ourselves to selflessness, then we are truly enlightened and able to share that light in the world. And as we share the little light we have, we're increased in the light given us by God. That's how it seems to work. We have to share it in order to receive it. So the, the mass readings rightly draw on the good invocations in the Psalms of God as our help, but they lead us to the height of the reality of how God helps us in this gospel passage, being that we have to share that help with others in order to receive it properly from God. And so after Christ tells us that in order to receive the light from God, we have to share the light, that our eyes have to be opened rightly so that we can be a light on the hill? What, what does the offertory chant tell us to do? Lighten mine eyes, that I sleep not in death, lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him. Immediately after this lesson from Christ in the gospel, that we need to pull the logs out of our own eyes so that we can be enlightened by God, the offertory chant offers us the confirmation the prayer, Lord, lighten mine eyes. So continuing on, as the gifts are being prepared and, and we prepare to commune, the priest at the altar as he's preparing the gifts prays, Regard, O Lord, the prayers and oblations of thy church and grant that the partaking thereof may avail for the salvation and continual sanctification of thy people. In other words, the priest, as he's preparing the gifts in order to, to pray over them with us that they be changed into Christ's body and blood so that we can feed on God, essentially says, now that we've prayed all of these things, now that we've been enlightened by the words of the Holy Gospel and in the offertory chant, we rightly pray, lighten mine eyes, the priest says, Lord, hear the prayers of your church now that they've learned this lesson, now that they've prayed this prayer, hear these prayers so that the partaking of this communion may be for their salvation. As we commune, we sing from Psalm 18, The Lord is my stony rock and my defense, my Savior, my God, and my might. We have learned that in order for God to be our refuge, we have to be a refuge for others in the world. For God to be our Savior, we have to, in whatever degree we can, help to save those around us. That's why we pray, the Lord is my rock and my defense and my savior. And finally, after we've communed, the priest prays this for us. We beseech thee, O Lord, that we, being quickened by thy holy mysteries, which we have now received, may be cleansed from our offenses and made ready for the obtaining of everlasting 
mercy. In other words, that we may everlastingly be merciful to those around us so that we may be ready to obtain your everlasting mercy. So this is just an example of how the chants, uh, the, the variable parts of the liturgy work in order to draw themes out for our understanding, for our edification. And we have these sources available to us. So I encourage you, uh, as, as we celebrate the liturgy, to follow along, to pay attention to the themes in the chants and in the epistles and in the gospels, and see how they all work together. See what lessons there are to gain from them. Um, pay attention and really enter into the celebration of the liturgy when we celebrate it. Because this truly is a divine thing. This is the highest form of human activity that, that we have. This is worship of God entered into, not just on our own. It's true that we can worship God wherever we are in our hearts. But when we gather together, in Greek it's the word synaxis, the scene being together or with. It's the, the description of the people gathering. Also that's what the, the Greek word um, for church is, ekklesia. It means to be taken out of the world to be put together in one place. In other words, we are gathered out of the world and made a different kind of thing on Sundays when we come together. So when we do this, this isn't, um, you know, a Bible study. Sure, we read the Bible. And this isn't just a praise and worship service. Yes, we praise and we worship. This is a mysterious gathering, the liturgy, the work of the people. This is something that we come to do in the divine liturgy. It's something that we come to offer God. And our offering of praise and thanksgiving and worship and attention and devotion is symbolized in the bread and the wine that we offer. It's focused on that bread and the wine. When we offer that to God... God then offers it back to us as his very presence. This kind of communion is the highest form of communion with God that there is. We offer all of ourselves to God, and God offers his very presence back to us. This is the closest to uh, full communion, the kind of theosis, God indwelling us and, and us entering into God that we look forward to in eternity. This is the foretaste here and now. So, there's a lot of uh, room to enter into the liturgy, to spread out, to inhabit it, to be intentional in our prayers here. I just wanted to point out how the prayers, the chants work so that um, we can sort of use that as a, as a way of entering more diligently and intentionally into the liturgy when we gather on Sundays. So, I hope that's helpful and that the uh, that this kind of makes sense as to how it was all put together and the function of all these um, all these chants why we why we do them how we have the, the entrance chant when we enter the offertory is obviously chanted as we're offering the gifts the communion is chanted as we commune um, so I pray that um, we make use of this now that we have it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent. 
Homilies and Reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox Mission in Atlanta, Georgia.